John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which, which you have just caught. Simon Peter, he went up and he dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dare ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. For a period of time, in 2009, 2010, a man named Paul Yarrow created quite a stir among the London news media. Yarrow, wearing, usually wearing a beige sweater, kept popping up in the background of live news reports. Sixteen times this happened, to be exact. Paul kept photobombing various on-location field reports. At first, Paul's identity was a mystery. He soon got the nickname, the News Raider. No one knew his motive, but he kept appearing <laughs> on Sky News, the BBC, Channel 4. Well, eventually, Paul Yarrow identified himself in his mission. His appearances were to protest, and I quote, the auto-cutie culture of the media. In Paul's view, it isn't fair that all the TV personalities are slim and trim and good-looking, he said there should be room for folks like him. And for a short period of time, Paul kept popping in, making unplanned appearances to prove his point. And this is exactly what Jesus did after his resurrection. For a short stint of time, 40 days to be exact, Jesus kept popping in. Photobombing the disciples, you might say. And these unplanned appearances made a point. That we should always make room for Jesus. 
This man who rose from the dead that first Easter morning is still alive. And Jesus wants to be part of your life. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, To his apostles he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. Jesus' sudden and surprising appearances vaporized any skepticism in the minds of his followers. Acts calls these occurrences infallible proofs. They saw him walk. They heard him talk. They saw the scars on Jesus. There was no denying it. Jesus was alive. These divine drop-ins filled his disciples with faith and utterly convinced them that life with Jesus would continue. And here in John chapter 21, the Lord drops in again. John begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again. And then he adds, and in this way, he showed himself. And that's intriguing language. You know, it's as if John is going to use this particular episode as a grid of us understanding all of his post-resurrection appearances. Evidently, the risen Christ followed a pattern. In essence, John is saying, here's how Jesus comes and goes. How he works here and there. How he does this and that. Why he'll appear at any time and in any place. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he informed his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there is a sense in which the risen Christ is always with us. In the person of the Holy Spirit, he indwells our hearts. He empowers us. He lives his life through us. But there is another sense in which the living Lord is still dropping in. For he promises us in Matthew 18 verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And throughout the book of Acts, there are occasions when Jesus reveals himself in a special manner where he performs extraordinary works. All Christians know from experience there are moments and there are places where the presence and the power of the risen Christ is expressly sensed and tangibly felt. I believe that John 21 serves as a blueprint to help us recognize the risen Christ's appearances in our lives and to help us cooperate with his activities. This morning, I want to divide my comments under four headings. First, where Jesus shows up. Second, when Jesus shows up. Third, how Jesus shows up. And then fourth, why Jesus shows up. See, I'm convinced that the risen Christ wants to drop in on you. He wants to drop in on me. The Savior wants to show up in our lives. And yet we need to know where and when and how and why to look. Well, first, I want you to notice where Jesus shows up. He engages his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's odd, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't appear in a synagogue or in a church building, or at a religious shrine, or even on the Temple Mount. Rather, Jesus reveals himself in a very regular and ordinary and nondescript spot. On a bank by the lake. And to guys doing something as humdrum as fishing. 
You know, when you survey the dozen or so post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you'll discover that that they all, without exception, occur in common, everyday places. His appearance has made the occasion special, but he never revealed himself at a special occasion. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, it was always to interrupt the mundane and routine and the daily of life. Think back to the events of that first Easter and the appearances of the risen Christ. What's so special about two dejected disciples tramping down a beaten path from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Or ten frightened men cloistered away in an upper room? Or a woman weeping in the garden? Or here in our text, a handful of fishermen working their favorite bed on the lake? Today, when you go to the place on the shoreline where it's believed that these events occurred, you find a little garden and a cute little chapel. It's known as the Church of the Promacy. The site has been transformed into a sacred spot, holy ground, a stopover for Holy Land pilgrims. But understand, in Jesus' day, it was just a spot. There was nothing religious or special or sacred or holy about this place. It was just a plain, unmarked beach on the bank. Call it a bore on the shore. In essence, for these disciples gone fishing, Jesus appeared to them at work. For fishing was their trade. You see, this would be the equivalent of the risen Christ appearing to you tomorrow morning at work. Or in the break room. Or in the office. Or on the assembly line. Or on the martyr train on your way to work. We expect Jesus to show up at church. At a religious venue. In a sacred place. And yet his post-resurrection appearances all occurred in secular settings. Jesus was always dropping in on everyday life in run-of-the-mill places. He invaded the daily. I'll never forget the night that Jesus met me in a saving way. It didn't happen for me in a church building. At that time in my life, I was pretty turned off to church. But I was learning about Jesus I knew he was Lord, and I knew I needed to surrender my will to his will. And so on a summer night in 1978, I rolled my car into a gravel parking lot, knelt down at a concrete picnic table. There was no stained glass, no worship band, no pastor on duty. But trust me, Jesus showed up. The living Lord Jesus forgave me of my many sins, took over my life, and I've never been the same since. Hey, if the only time you look for Jesus is on Sunday mornings in a house of worship, no wonder you're missing him. Open your eyes, my friend. Jesus is out and about. You're liable to find Jesus at the ballpark or on the roadside or in the movie theater or hanging out in your backyard or cruising with you in the car or at the neighbor's house. Not just the sacred, but the secular is his domain. Scripture says the earth is is his footstool. Reminds me of an article that appeared in Campus Life magazine. It was titled, A Tisket, A Tasket, I'm Coming Out of the Casket. (laughs) A South African man named George Scowie decided to fake his death. He wanted to test his family and see what they would say to him if they thought he was dead. Imagine in the middle of the pastor's eulogy, When George, the guest of honor, pops up out of his coffin. Surprise! 
Well, George said later that he's going to keep the casket for his real funeral. And let me suggest, if he keeps pulling stunts like that, it'll be sooner rather than later. (laughs) But Jesus, this was no joke. He vacated his tomb. He shed his shroud. In essence, he did pop out of the casket. Jesus heard what his loved ones said about him after he was dead. He saw how they treated him. Jesus knew. You know, I'm convinced that most Christians fall into lapses where we treat Jesus as if he were dead, even when he's not. We forget the Lord lives to work in our lives today. And just about the time we begin to eulogize him, Jesus pops up again in our lives in a dynamic way. He surprises us all over again. He shows up in a new and in a startling manner. I'll never forget when I was enrolled at Bible College in California at the Calvary Chapel Bible College. One weekend, we drove over to Las Vegas to spend a few days witnessing on the streets. It was an exciting adventure. We talked to scores and scores of folks. Some of them were even sober. (laughs) I had a roommate who was broke financially. Lee was down to his last couple of quarters. He wasn't even sure how he was getting back to the college. And I'll never forget, we were in Caesar's palace by the slot machines when all of a sudden I saw Lee stick his last quarter into one of those slot machines. He actually laid hands on top of the machine. (laughs) And the best of my memory, this is, he's prayed a prayer sort of like this, Lord, this is a den of wickedness and evil and greed, but I know you're above it all. And you can use whatever means you choose to bless your servants. And so, Lord, I ask you to take this quarter and to multiply it. And then he pulled the lever on that one-armed bandit. And no joke, the window read, not lemon, 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 not apple, 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 but seven, seven, seven. (laughs) Two hundred quarters came rumbling and tumbling out of that slot machine. And you should have seen the look on the lady's face in the chair next to us. The poor girl almost had a heart attack. She almost fell off her stool. I wouldn't be surprised if she's not still there 30 years later praying over that slot machine. Hey, understand, I don't believe God manipulates slot machines on a regular basis to advocate gambling. But I know this, he used that incident that day to show me that he's far bigger than the box I had him in. The living, loving Lord Jesus can work anywhere, at any time, in any way he chooses. Where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. But when does Jesus show up? And the answer, when you least expect him, but when you most need him. Notice these disciples, they're out on the water, busily working their nets. Jesus appears on the shore, but they don't know it's him. Perhaps it was still dark. Maybe they were were a little too far out to distinguish his features and recognize him on the shore. Or maybe they just didn't expect to see him and didn't bother to scrutinize this stranger. Jesus wants to reveal himself to them, but they're unaware. And you know, I believe the same is true of us. Jesus wants to reveal himself to us, but oftentimes we don't recognize him either. 
you know, it's suggested that the reason the Holy Spirit names only five of the seven fishermen in this boat is so that you and I can take our seat as the unnamed two. All too often, the reason we don't recognize Jesus is because we're not expecting him. Reminds me of the church Easter pageant where the play's director was casting roles. One little boy, he insisted on being the rock in front of the tomb. The director asked him, he said, but don't you want a speaking part? A role where you can be more involved? The little guy was adamant, no, I want to be the rock. Well, after the performance, the director was still curious about the little boy's choice of roles. And so he asked him, he said, why did you want to play the rock? He smiled and he said, ah, it felt so good to be the first to see Jesus. And this is the meaning of Easter. The stone was rolled away. The stone was impacted by the resurrection. And you see, until you've been moved by the risen Christ, you haven't had Easter. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is alive and well, whether you believe in him or are affected by him. But the stone was rolled off the mouth of the tomb by the risen Christ. And the truth of the resurrection ought to move you as well. It should get your faith rolling. Realize the living Lord wants to reveal himself to you. I believe he drops in on us far more than we realize. But we don't see him because we're not looking. And one of the biggest causes of our blindness is our own self-sufficiency. You see, we don't look for Jesus because we've learned to get along, to do just fine without him. Remember, Peter was a fisherman by profession. He had bumbled and stumbled as a disciple, but he knew fishing. And here he's falling back on a former confidence. That is, until Jesus strips him of his self-assurance. You see, the Lord orchestrates a little divinely inspired emptiness. Notice we're told at the end of verse 3, they caught nothing. Peter and the professionals had fished all night without a bite. Their fishing was a flop. Notice, God sets up the disciples for a visitation and a revelation by allowing them to labor all night in vain. They burned up their energies. They ended up exhausted. It was a season of failure that primed them for Jesus' appearance. Hey, realize nothing clouds our spiritual vision more than our own successes. It's hard to see Jesus when our nets are full, when we think we've got it all under control. You're less likely to see the risen Lord when it's all about you. That's why Jesus lets the disciples try their hand at fishing, and then he sees to it that their nets end up empty. Well, when does Jesus show up? When you least expect him, but when you most need him. We'll see Jesus when we're most aware of our need for him. But then the next question, how does Jesus show up? And the answer here is in a series of subtleties. You see, seldom is an appearance of Jesus announced by angelic trumpets or preceded by handwriting across the sky. No, whenever the risen Christ has appeared to me, it's not been with cracks of thunder and blinding lights. You remember the occasion when God revealed himself to Elijah on Mount Horeb? At first, Elijah beheld a mighty wind that ripped open the side of the mountain. The wind was followed by an earthquake that caused the ground to tremble under his feet, and then a blazing fire. But God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. 
Finally, we're told that Elijah heard a still, small voice, and that was the voice of God. You see, when Jesus appears, don't expect a drum roll and fanfare. No, he speaks in quiet whispers, in gentle nudges, in calm assurances, in eternal priorities, in godly desires. Hey, no parent likes to yell at their kids, do they? I mean, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have to raise your voice to get your child's attention. You could let them know in a whisper, even in a wink or a nod, what you wanted. And likewise, God doesn't like yelling at us to get our attention. Jesus comes to us through a series of subtleties. No one thing tips off the disciples that this man on the shore is Jesus. It dawns on them gradually. The truth hits them only after a sequence of perceptions. Notice Jesus' first words. Children, have you any food? This is the question every fisherman gets asked. In essence, hey guys, have you caught anything? Reminds me of the guy who shouted to a boatload of fishermen, hey, how are they biting? The frustrated fisherman answered, well, on the legs and on the back of the neck, mostly. Their only bites were from mosquitoes and chiggers. Another old fisherman was asked how many fish he'd caught. He replied, well, I'll tell you, if I catch the one I'm after and two more, I'll have three. <laughs> the disciples were less optimistic, but they were a lot more honest. They answered the man on the shore, none. Notice too, when Jesus addresses his disciples from the shore, he uses the word children. One commentator translates the Greek word as lads. Hey, lads, Jesus was addressing his disciples with a phrase that communicated affection and intimacy and caring. This is the first in the string of subtleties. His greeting communicated love as it did when he first addressed these disciples in the upper room. You remember the first words he spoke to them, peace be with you. You know, some of us don't look for Jesus for we fear his wrath. We hope he doesn't appear because we think he's mad at us. Hey, we're more interested in trying to duck him than to see him. We're afraid he might judge us if he reveals himself to us. We failed him so often. But trust me, you have nothing to fear. For Jesus loves you despite of your sin. If you're a believer, he's already forgiven you. He wants you to experience the peace that a renewed awareness of his presence will bring. These disciples, they were wayward kids. They were prodigal sons. Yet Jesus was not ashamed to call them his children, his lads. And this must have got them thinking. It was the first subtlety that pointed to Jesus. Perhaps they began to wonder. Maybe even they asked each other, isn't it weird for a stranger to call us friends, lads? And be concerned over whether we really have any food? Well, the second subtlety is Jesus' instructions. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Though I'm sure it didn't register at first. The disciples had heard this before. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus first called Peter and his pals to follow him, it was after a similar episode, remember. They'd fished all night, and they'd returned to the shore empty-handed. And that's when Jesus told Peter to row back out and throw in his nets. And you remember, they took in a miracle catch. Well, in a subtle way here, Jesus is reminding them of the first time they realized that he was the Son of God. 
Now three and a half years later, Jesus is re-enlisting them into his service. And he's priming the pump of their faith by using similar circumstances. He's stirring up the beginnings of their faith. Hey, when God works in our lives, when he reminds us of a former way that he's worked, he does so to prepare us for a new and future work. God isn't into reminiscing just for old time's sake. He's not sentimental without a purpose for being so. No, when God recalls a past victory or a past lesson, it's to prepare you for a lesson or a victory still future that lies ahead. Well, as these fishermen are laughing and celebrating and dragging in their stretching nets, it suddenly hits John. The string of subtlety suddenly comes together. The tumblers all fall into place. Children, his concern, these circumstances, now the catch. The puzzle pieces fit into place. This is Jesus. And as soon as it hits him, it's John who shouts, It's the Lord. And oh, how I love that line. What an incredible experience it is when you see his purpose suddenly behind the randomness. You weren't expecting it. You didn't see it coming. But a miracle snuck up behind you, slapped its hands over your eyes and squealed, Surprise! Guess who? By then you know, it's the Lord. There's an expression among Christians that sums up these experiences. When Jesus surprises us, when the subtleties mount up, when you conclude it's the Lord, then someone will say, that was a God thing. You ever heard that? And that's John's reaction here. When it dawns on him that the man on the beach is Jesus, John is the first person to shout, it's a God thing. It's the Lord. And notice it was John. He was the first disciple to recognize that it's Jesus. He doesn't call himself by his given name. He uses a pen name, the disciple who Jesus loved. And that points to a profound connection. For the first to recognize Jesus was the disciple that had cultivated the most intimate relationship with him. Recall John was the disciple that leaned in on Jesus at the Last Supper. At the cross, Jesus had committed the care of his mother Mary over to John. Jesus loved and trusted John. I believe that Jesus loved John so dearly because his love was so quickly returned by John. And understand the pattern here. The people who love Jesus most are usually the first to sense his presence. I'm convinced Jesus is constantly dropping in. But if I want to be quick to recognize him, then I need to cultivate a personal and spiritual intimacy with him. It's when I spend time with him and read his word and pray and let the Holy Spirit stir my passions and enlighten my understanding. Then I'll be quick to see it's the Lord. Well, so far we've answered three questions. Where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. When does Jesus show up? When we least expect him, but when we need him most. How does Jesus show up? In a series of subtleties. And now the final question. Why does Jesus show up? And there are two answers, two ways we could answer this question. We could put it, Jesus drops in on us to turn our ship around. This is what happened to the disciples, wasn't it? They were busy with the business of fishing until it dawned on them that the stranger on the shore was Jesus. 
That's when they immediately steered their ship in his direction. They turned their little boat about face. In fact, Peter couldn't even wait to turn the boat around. When he knew it was the Lord, he left the boat behind, dove into the lake, and swam for the shore. You got to love Peter's enthusiasm, even while you mourn his lack of common sense. Read again verse 7. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. Okay, let's see here. Let's put our coat on and then jump into the water. I mean, obviously, Peter's only thought is, I got to get to Jesus. And this is what happens whenever you see that it's the Lord. This becomes your driving passion. This becomes your only concern. I got to get to Jesus. When Jesus shows up, it creates a shift in our direction. When he crosses your path, your path gets altered. Jesus comes with new bearings, new coordinates. He plots a new course. Jesus takes over the steering of our lives. I guess a second way that we could put this would be that when Jesus drops in, he always creates a transformational moment. Life does not remain the same after Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus doesn't come to endorse the status quo. No, he rocks the boat. He comes to do a new work. Jesus is into transformation. He works big changes in our lives. Raymond Donovan, he served as the Secretary of Labor under President Reagan. Donovan tells about a trip that he made with the former president on Air Force One. Initially, he was in the rear of the plane with the other staff members, but halfway through the flight, he was asked to join the president for lunch in his private quarters. Well, Ray Donovan, he straightened out his tie, got all excited. He thought of how important he must be to be having lunch in Air Force One with the president of the United States. And then to top it all off, when he walked into the president's stateroom, the red phone, the hotline, it began to ring. Donovan thought, wow. What a moment to be with the leader of the free world. He's about to deal with a national emergency and I'm going to be by his side. Reagan calmly picked up the phone, listened for a few short minutes, and then he asked, what are my options? Donovan's heart skipped a beat. His mind started racing back and forth to all the possible scenarios that might be brewing. The international crises that might be popping up. Finally, the president answered, Okay, I'll have the iced tea. (laughs) And he hung up the hotline. So much for Ray Donovan's part in a transformational moment. But you need to know that when Jesus invites you for a meal, you can be sure that he has some very sensitive and strategic issues that he wants to discuss with you. He deals with us with matters of eternal significance. Hey, when the disciples came ashore, they found a fire of coals and broiling fish. But this wasn't your typical fish fry. Here's where the Greek words translated coals and fish come in handy. Coals is anthrakia. It's the same word used for the fire of coals that Peter huddled over several weeks earlier on the night that he denied Jesus. The word for fish is opsarion, the word John used to describe the two fish which Jesus used to feed 5,000. 
And you remember it was immediately after the miracle of multiplication that Peter had recommitted himself to Jesus. The Lord had asked his disciples if they were going to leave him as the multitudes had done. But Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The point is, is that when the risen Christ dropped in on Peter, he dropped right into his heart. With the coals, he took Peter back to the night of his defeat. With the fish, he reminded Peter of his commitment to still follow. And when Jesus appears to you and me, the truth comes out. Skeletons topple out of the closet. Smoke screens dissipate. The real issues of our lives surface. See, when Jesus drops in, it forces us to face the truth about ourselves. For Jesus knows we can't turn our ship around until we recognize we've been headed in the wrong direction. I had a friend who used to drop in on us unannounced. Early in our marriage, he would drop by the house and surprise us for a visit. He would show up, he'd knock on the door, and if the door was unlocked, he'd just walk on in. Well, with my newlywed wife's gentle coaxing, I explained to my friend that this was no longer the proper protocol. But realize, this is exactly how Jesus rolls. The risen Christ has no qualms at all about dropping in on you unannounced. He comes when you least expect him, but when you most need him, Jesus loves us. and He wants to turn our ship around. Notice in verse 12, Jesus is standing on the beach when he invites his disciples, come and eat breakfast. (laughs) You know, it's striking to me that Jesus invited his disciples to breakfast, to the first meal of the day. In fact, the whole experience in John 21 happened early in the morning. In fact, most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances occurred in the a.m. You remember his first drop in to Mary outside the tomb. It was at dawn, at the very break of day. Here in John 21, all this dawns on the disciples at dawn. When Jesus drops in, it's a brand new day. Hey, recall how we divide history. There's B.C. and there's A.D., B.C. stands for before Christ. It's also the name of a headache reliever, B.C. powder. And to me, this is so fitting. For my life before Christ, the B.C. days, they were just that, one big headache for me. A.D., though, is a Latin abbreviation, Anno Domini, which means year of our Lord. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that marked a new era, a new day on planet earth. Today, life is influenced and dominated by Jesus. We're still in the year of our Lord. And whether you're 13 or 33 or 83, when the risen Christ drops into your life, it marks the beginning of a brand new day. Jesus invites us to breakfast, not nightcaps. And notice again in verse 12, Jesus says, come. And don't you love that word, come? To me, it's one of the most beautiful words in all of the English language, come. Author John Phillips makes a big deal of this word. He writes, come. It is the grandest word in the gospel. It dissolves distance. 
It brings saint and sinner alike to him who takes away sin and sadness and replaces them with joy and gladness. This morning, won't you come to Jesus? For the centuries prior to Christ, man was separated from God. He was barred from God's presence. In fact, when God revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, they roped off the mountain so that no one would wander too close. Imagine, God was off limits. But what Jesus did on the cross caused God to bury his hatchet. God is no longer angry with man over his sin. For Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has won God's forgiveness. And today... Just as he did on the shore that morning, Jesus invites whosoever will to come. This one marvelous word ends our imposed separation. You and I have been invited by the risen Lord to come to him. And if you're not a Christian, here's Jesus' word to you today. Come. Please come to him. He will wash away your sins. And if you are a Christian, yes, Jesus is always with you. But he also wants to make his presence known to you in a personal way. He wants to drop in in your life. And that's why we should prepare our hearts with faith and anticipation. So that when the risen Christ does drop in, you and I will be the first to say, it's the Lord.